Well, good morning, Southlands. It is good to be with you on this Super Bowl Sunday. As a Cowboys fan, we don't celebrate Super Bowl Sunday. We don't, we don't believe in that. It's been 26 years, 26 years since we believed in that. Might be 26 more. Um, but uh, so yeah, if you're like me and your team's not playing today, I just want to invite you to enjoy a lazy Sunday afternoon. Hang out, go out, hit the shops, places that are normally busy. You can go and enjoy. Uh, it's great. It's great to be a Cowboys fan. Um, if you like being disappointed. Um, so, but in all seriousness, I'm glad that you are here with us this morning. Uh, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors, and I have the privilege of carrying on in our series through the book of Hebrews that we've titled Jesus is Better. And in this series, we're only a couple weeks in, but we're going to spend the next few months going through the book of Hebrews and looking at the fact that Jesus is better than all things. He's better than all people. He's better than anything that we could compare him to. And so we are this morning picking up in Hebrews chapter two. And in Hebrews chapter two, we're gonna look at the fact that Jesus is a better brother. He's a better brother for us. And maybe you're thinking, well, I have a brother. I myself have a brother, three years older than me, lives in New Orleans, and he's an amazing brother. Uh, But even though he's been an amazing brother who's looked out for me and done much for me, I actually need a better brother. And we're gonna look specifically at how Jesus is actually a better brother than Adam. Adam and Eve, right? Adam, we could say he's our, our original, our first brother. And actually Jesus is better than him. And so as we look at that this morning, I wanna encourage you, I wanna ask you to, te- to keep a couple questions in mind. See this term better, it's a, it's a word that we use when we, can, when we compare things, right? If you're like me and you buy things online, you'll do a lot of research before you actually ever pull the trigger. My wife often just says, can you just buy the thing already? And I go, I just gotta read one more review. Just gotta find one more. I'm gonna find that site that just tells me it's perfect, right? But you'll often see that when we compare things, we'll say, oh, this option is good, but this other option is actually better. And so one of the questions I want you to keep in mind this morning is the question of what is Jesus better than, right? It's easy to say Jesus is better, but what is he better than? The second question I want you to ask is how is Jesus better? Right, again, if you look at reviews online, you'll see things compared and they'll have different reasons while this model is better than that model, right? So this morning we should be asking, okay, if Jesus is a better brother, if he's better than Adam, I've already given you the answer to the first question, then how, how is he a better brother? And thirdly, I want you to be asking, why does this matter? Why does this matter? Right? Have you ever looked into reviews and you realize that there's all these really cool features and, oh, this model is better because it has this and this and this and this and this, but actually none of it's relevant to your life. None of it's actually things that you need in that, in that product, right? So we should be asking, why does the fact that Jesus is better, why is that fact actually life-changing for us? Why does it change the way we live and the way we think? So I want you to keep those questions in mind as we work through this this morning. And as we look at the fact that Jesus is in fact a better brother to us. So would you join me? We're gonna be in Hebrews chapter two, verse five. And I'm gonna be reading from the ESV. I'm gonna pray for us and then we'll dive in to the text. Jesus, this morning, we are gathered here as your people because you are worthy. 
You're worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our lives. You're worthy of our obedience. You're worthy of everything that we have. And that is why we're gathered here, God, because you alone are worthy. We believe that you are better than all things. We believe that you satisfy and that you love and that you care in ways that nothing else in this world can. And Jesus, this morning, we want to know you more. God, I pray that we would know you more this morning, that we would actually have our eyes open to see you a bit more this morning, that our ears would be open to hear you a little bit more this morning, that our heart would be open to receive your word, to respond to it, Jesus. Jesus, we love you, we praise you. We declare that you alone are worthy. In your name, amen. Join me in Hebrews chapter two, verse five. We're gonna read verses five to nine. We're gonna kind of jump in and out of the text and then I'll explain a little bit. We'll go back to the text. So if you have your Bible and you're following along, just keep your Bible open. If not, the words will be up on the screen and we're all gonna be gracious to the sound booth because I'm gonna jump back and forth and they're gonna have to try to follow me. So verse five, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So what's going on here? What's happened in the beginning of this passage, right? If you remember last week, Kevin Meesh preached out of Hebrews chapter one and the beginning of chapter two, and he talked about the fact that Jesus is better than angels. And the author here in Hebrews kind of transitions here and says, actually, in verse five, it's not to angels that the world, that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. So right? he, he's very clearly moving on. We're moving past angels now. And then he quotes in verses six to eight here, he's actually quoting from Psalm chapter eight, verse four to six. This passage, says, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? And what the author is actually doing here is he's kind of hearkening back to the point of creation. He's kind of taking us back to the garden. And he's saying, actually, let's, let's look at, we have this, this problem, right? So if we want to get really simplify it, the author is trying to establish that we have a problem in these first few verses of this, of this passage. And so he's, he's going back to the garden. He's saying, hey, remember at the garden of Eden, Genesis chapter two, after Adam and Eve have been created, after all of creation has been spoken into existence by God himself, he gives dominion over all creation to Adam and Eve, right? He commands them in Genesis two to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. And what's happening here is the author is saying, hey, actually back at the point of creation, all of creation was subjected under the foot of Adam and Eve. And what happened? For those of you who know the story, what happened in Genesis chapter three? I wanna shout it out, any of you. The fall. Genesis chapter three, right? Adam and Eve sin. They rebel. They decide to go their own way. They decide that actually what God had called them to do, they were gonna do something different. And so they actually 
through their sin, death enters the world, right? And God comes to find them in the garden, and Adam and Eve have actually taken up this posture where they're now hiding from God. They've recognized their sin. They've been um, uh, made aware of their shame. And so they go and they make clothes for themselves out of leaves and they go and they hide. And when God finds them, he says, things are gonna change. Things are gonna be different. Actually, the peace that you've experienced here in the garden, that's gonna be gone. The peace between man, the peace between man and God, that's gonna be gone. The provision that they had experienced in the garden, that was gonna be gone, right? He tells Adam, you'll have to work the ground now to bring forth food. Before, everything that they had that they needed, everything was provided for them. They lived in perfect peace with full provision. And God says, no more. And the author here in Hebrews is actually reminding the listeners, hey, we're living with that brokenness. Right? Not all of creation is currently subjected as it should be. We're living in the brokenness of the fall. Right? And how many of you would say, yeah, I see that. In my daily life, I see the brokenness of the fall. I don't think it's hard, right? I don't think it's difficult for us to say, we see it, we feel it, we experience it. We live in a world where creation is not as it should be. Right? If you look at those areas where Adam and Eve these areas of loss as they exited the garden, this area of peace, a loss of peace between one another. We look around our world today. I'm sure if you follow the news, you're aware that the Russian military has amassed 235,000 troops along the Ukrainian border. Experts predict and suggest that in maybe as, as few as a couple days, maybe a week or two, it's possible there could be an invasion of Ukraine by the Russian military. I was reading this week, uh, I'm a bit of a, a world news junkie, but I, I was reading this week that actually experts suspect that if, if there is a full-scale invasion, there could be as many as 50,000 civilian casualties. Right, we look around our world and it's very clear, there's a loss of peace. There's not perfect peace in this world. Right? Instead, you have one person who has power who's trying to exert that over others for their benefit. That's not the way the world was in the garden. That's not the way the creation was, was, was actually set up in the garden. That's the reality of the brokenness of the world. A few months back, we prayed for Afghanistan on a Sunday morning, right? We had talked about, if you were here, we talked about it was around the time that the Taliban had taken control of Afghanistan. And we prayed for Christians there because we believed and suspected that life was gonna get harder for Christians as they sought to follow Jesus in, in Afghanistan. And we believe that life would get harder for women and young girls under the rule of the Taliban. Well, things, if you haven't been keeping up to date on what's going on, things have in fact been getting more difficult in Afghanistan. Many people have descended into complete poverty. Experts say that by the middle of 2022, Afghanistan may reach a point of near universal poverty where 97% of the population lives in poverty. A loss of provision, right? That perfect provision of the garden is not there anymore. Or in Yemen, where years of civil war and conflict have led to maybe the humanitarian crisis of our day. Two thirds of the population of Yemen live at the risk of starvation. 400,000 children across Yemen are considered severely malnourished. 
It's not how things were created to be. In the garden, there was perfect peace, there was perfect provision, but we live in the brokenness of this world where there is a loss of peace and food insecurity. There's famine and drought and these things that were never actually a part of how creation was meant to be. But I wanna bring it a little closer to home. I think one of the greatest examples of just the brokenness of the world that we experience the last two years, psychologists and experts say that anxiety and depression have increased by maybe as much as 25% worldwide. No matter what demographic you take, no matter what age group you take, the stats say that anxiety and depression are increasing. And I wanna be very clear that I don't, I don't speak about this to say there's any shame in that. Actually, a good friend of mine on Thursday evening texted me. Someone who has battled anxiety for a few years, who has done a lot of incredible, incredibly hard work to find healing, working with counselors, seeking prayer, trusting Jesus for healing. He reached out and said, hey, today was a bad day. Anxiety reared its head again. I need help, I need prayer. I believe that Jesus can heal. So I don't bring this up to say that there's any shame in this, but I do bring it up to say it's not actually how creation was meant to be. In the garden, there was peace, there was provision. There was no anxiety, there was no depression. Those things are a result of the fall. And so the author of Hebrews is just simply establishing that there is a problem. We live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world. And I think if we're all honest, we feel that not even just out there, we feel it right in here every single day. We know, we look at ourselves and we know there's things in here that are broken. There's things in here in, in, here, in my own heart that are not as they should be. And the author of Hebrews then turns to verse nine. And verse nine is a good verse. And verse nine starts with a good word, a simple word, a three-letter word, the word but. You know, if someone comes to you with a problem and they say, hey, here's this problem. It's really bad. Here's all the reasons that it's bad. You know that if they get to the part where they say, but, you know that good news is coming, right? Because they're saying, hey, we're gonna turn course here. We're not just gonna sit here and wallow in the fact that the world's broken. We have actually a different course to take. I think if you were to ask my wife, when we have, we have disagreements, I'm probably the king of this tactic, right? I hear her say, hey, here's this, this situation where I didn't feel so great or you responded not so amazingly kindly to me. And I often go, yeah, yeah, I hear you. I hear you, I hear you. But, right, I wanna tell you, if that's, if that's the context you're using, like, that's not a good example. That's not what's happening here. Okay, that is a bad use of the word, but don't, I, I do not recommend that. But actually here, it's good news. Because y'all are saying, yes, there's a problem. The, the world is broken. It's not as it should be, but, and what does the author say? But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. That's the good news, Southlands. We live in a broken world, but we see Jesus. Like that's, this, that's the total of the good news. We see Jesus. The author does not say all of your problems are instantly gone. 
The author does not say we no longer live in a broken world. He says, no, no, we live in a broken world. Not everything is as it should be, but we see Jesus. And Southlands, I wanna say that is something that we should cling to. That's a verse that we can actually stamp and say, no, 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 things are hard today. When my buddy texted me on Thursday, things are rough, anxiety has reared his head, but we see Jesus. And he reached out for prayer because he sees Jesus. He knows there's a different way. And so Southlands, if you're sitting here this morning going, actually the troubles of the world, the brokenness of the world, it all feels overwhelming. I wanna say, I, I see that, I understand that, I, I feel that, but we see Jesus, we see him. And so what do we see when we look at Jesus? What do we see in him? And I wanna, I wanna propose that actually in Jesus, we see a better brother, right? If we think about Adam as our first brother, right? The one who, who actually all of our lineage traces back to, we see that he was a brother who gave us sin and brokenness we inherited some real junk from Adam. But actually in Jesus, we find a better brother, a different brother. And so I wanna look at verses 10 and 11 because we begin to see how he is a better brother. In verse 10, it says, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Just to be clear, that word in the Greek, brothers, is the plural term that can mean brothers or brothers and sisters. It's not actually specific just to men. So this is not just that Jesus identifies with you men in the room as brothers. No, all of us, he's saying that he is our brother. But the first thing that we see of how Jesus is a better brother is that he's the creator of all things. Right? Did, you, did you see that in there in verse 10? There's that simple little phrase that when you first read the passage, it kind of trips you up because it doesn't really fit totally perfectly. For whom and by whom all things exist. Talking about Jesus. For whom and by whom all things exist. Right? We think about John 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then in verse three of John 1, it goes on to say that all things were created through him and nothing that has been made was not created through him. Right, this is the same, the same language here. For whom and by whom all things exist. And I wanna say this is good news, right? Because our, our older brother, Adam, right? Our first brother, he was not the creator of all things. He was given control of all things, right? He was given dominion over creation. And what's happening here is not that Adam failed and God decided, hey, I'm gonna promote the assistant manager, right? Have you ever seen that in maybe an organization that you've worked in, right? You got a leader who like is bad at their job. They somehow attained power and moved up the ranks and they're just not good at their job. And so they fail. And the company goes, well, we got this person. They're kind of like the assistant manager. Let's just bump them up and see if things get better. Have any of you seen that? Okay, I've seen that in organizations that I've worked at. Not here, just to be totally clear. Um, but I've seen that in organizations that I have worked at. That's not what's happening here, right? Adam, 
Adam was not like the manager. Now Jesus, like, Jesus, you get a turn. You get a try because Adam messed up. I don't know. Jesus is the creator of all, of all things. So when you sit in your, in your current state where you say, I see the brokenness of the world. I feel the brokenness of the world. I'm living with the effects of it all around me. The good news is not that we just have a savior who is like in control. That's good. I don't know, but he actually has created all things. He is the sustainer of life. He is the very means by which everything exists. And he's able to understand every nuance and aspect of the difficulties that you face. He's not just aware. He's the one who actually sustains all life. He's the creator of all things. But then it gets even better. We see that not only is the creator of all things, but he offers us salvation. See, it would be kind of good news if it was like, hey, things are hard. The world is broken, but don't worry, Jesus knows. It's even better news when you say, no, 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 but he actually has a solution. He actually not just brought the problem. He didn't just acknowledge the problem. He actually has a solution to the problem. We see again in verse 10, that he's made the founder of our salvation. Jesus has made the founder of our salvation. He is the one who establishes salvation for us and offers it to us. That's good news, right? The world is broken, things are not as they should be, but Jesus actually offers a solution to the problem. We don't have to just sit with the brokenness of the world. We can receive a solution to the brokenness of the world. And how does he do that? How does Jesus offer us salvation? What does that look like? We see that in verses 14 to 18. So turn there with me. Let me give it up for the, the slides person. Just on, on top of it. Well done, Matt. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one that has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. How does Jesus offer us salvation? How does he offer us salvation? He becomes like us, right? It says that the children had flesh and blood and he became likewise, he likewise partook and became like his brothers in every respect. And I know this is not, for many of you, if you follow Jesus for any amount of time, this is not a groundbreaking truth. But I do think it's actually one that we often just kind of begin to accept and move right past. That the creator of all things, for whom and by whom all things exist, that creator became like us in every respect. Like us. He entered the brokenness of his own creation to offer us salvation. That's mind-blowing, right? Like that, that's, that's crazy. The creator of all things, 
taking on flesh and blood to become like us in every respect. So think about that, every respect. Means Jesus was born and had the challenges of learning to walk and to talk, had the challenges of learning to be a brother and a sibling, had the challenges of learning to listen to his parents. Those of you who are parents, this gives me, as a parent, this gives me great hope. Jesus himself had to struggle through to learn to be a child and to learn to listen to his parents. There's hope for my children as well. He had to learn to navigate relationships and friendships. He had to learn to deal with loss and disappointment. He had to deal with friends who let him down, people who failed him. He had to deal with people who abandoned him and just walked away. He had to deal with the pain of a physical earthly body that would walk from town to town. He had to deal with the pain of a physical body that could be beaten and hung on a cross, right? He became like us in every respect. That he might do what? That he might destroy the devil and defeat the power of death. That's the solution. The solution is Jesus shows up, he enters the brokenness of the world and says, I'm going to actually live and become just like you that I might die and defeat the devil and destroy the power of death. That's good news for us, right? Like we live in the brokenness of this world, but he's actually saying, no, no, I've defeated the power of death. He became just like us. That he might set us free. Right, if we think back to Adam, I think I like to think about it this way. Adam sins in the garden. And through Adam's sin, death enters the world. Then we fast forward a couple thousand years and Jesus now enters the world that he might destroy death. That's a better brother, right? Like Adam gives us a bunch of junk and says, hey, by the way, now you have a sin nature. You got death entering the world. All the peace that you had amongst one another and the peace with God, that's all gone. That's what we inherited from Adam. But actually from Jesus, we inherit life. We inherit freedom. We inherit the ability to actually not be slaves to the fear of death anymore. He came, became like us, that he might defeat the devil and destroy death. That's good news. That is very good news. But I think sometimes we stop there. We acknowledge that. If you're like me, right? I grew up in, in a family that was a Christian family with really good parents who loved Jesus, who wanted me to love Jesus. I grew up going to a Christian school because my parents thought that would help me in developing a love for Jesus. I grew up in a family where we, we went to church not every Sunday, maybe not most Sundays, but some Sundays. They were trying. We were all doing our best, right? But I actually oftentimes would stop at this truth. I would stop here and say, yeah, yeah, I know there's a problem. There's brokenness in the world. And there's a solution that Jesus came and became like me and took on flesh and lived and died and was resurrected from the, from the dead. And he has defeated death. And I'd stop there. And I actually miss the, the last aspect of why he's a better brother. 
So the last thing that we see in this passage of what makes Jesus a better brother is that he hasn't just acknowledged our problem. He hasn't even just provided a solution to our problem. No, no, no. He's merciful to us. He's a merciful high priest. And I think sometimes we miss that. We don't really live like that. Right, the role of the priest was, the priest would actually receive the sacrifice from the family, from the people, of the Jewish people, and would offer the sacrifice to make amends and to atone for the sin of the people. And Jesus becomes the high priest who actually he himself suffers. He himself is sacrificed that we might be cleansed of our sins. But he's a merciful high priest. So I think I used to think, and maybe you were like me, you grew up in a form of Christianity that really emphasized a list of right and wrongs. Any of you? You grew up in a church or in a family who said, hey, if you're a good Christian, you do these things. And if you're a good Christian, you don't do these things. And it became easy to actually evaluate your faith and how much you had received the salvation that Jesus offers by saying, am I doing the list? Am I doing the stuff? Am I doing the good kid stuff? Right? I remember growing up going like, okay, I gotta do like the good kid stuff. And my parents can never know when I do this stuff on the, the list that you're not allowed to do. My parents can't know about that, right? Because I gotta be a good Christian. And I had kind of internalized this idea that actually God had somehow, yes, he had come and he had, he had established salvation, but he was actually kind of like distant now. And instead he just gave me a list of rules to follow. And I was not great at following those rules. My parents probably are watching. They thought I was better at following those rules than I was. <laughs> but I somehow had internalized this idea that actually there was just this list of rules to follow. And that's what following Jesus was really all about. Are you doing the right stuff? Then I went to college and I went to Biola. Any of you go to Biola? I know. I already knew that, so thanks for, thanks for playing along there. Um, I went to Biola, and I realized that actually I think I became better at looking like the list was being all accomplished, while at the same time following the list even more poorly. But I realized, and I began to believe, and I began to still live out at Biola, this idea that actually if I just kept up the right perception, if I just did the right stuff, like all the mess and all the brokenness inside of me, that didn't matter as long as I did the right stuff. And actually what I had done is I had, I had missed the fact that God's merciful. I had actually thought he just gave me this list and that he was kind of preoccupied and he went on his own way and he left these rules for me to follow. But actually I'd missed the beauty of the incarnation. See, when Jesus came and took on flesh, and came and lived and dwelt among his creation. It is the most profound picture of the fact that our God, the God that we love and that we serve in the person of Jesus is not a God who stays far off. He's not a God who says, hey, get your stuff together and then come to me. No, no, he actually enters into the brokenness, right? He came to a broken creation and drew near to his people. 
And so this morning, if you're sitting here going, yeah, it just feels like God's kind of distant. I don't really feel him. I promise you, he is not far off. The incarnation proves to us that he is willing to enter the brokenness of our lives. If this morning you're sitting here going, man, there's some real stuff in here that's broken. He's willing to enter into that brokenness. He's willing to say, hey, I'm, I'm gonna come to you and I'm gonna dive right into the messed up brokenness that you got going on and I'm gonna be with you. That's what the incarnation teaches us, that he's willing to come and draw near to us even when we don't have it all together, even when we have no solution to our problems, even when, we, when we've created bigger messes than we could ever imagine. He's willing to enter in. But he's also merciful. Like the other thing that I believed was not, that, not just that God was far off and had given me a list of rules. I think I had internalized this belief that actually he was probably pretty displeased with me. I think I, I had this belief that actually God probably sat back, gave me this list of rules and saw how ill-equipped I was to follow them. And that some, in some way he sat there and was so displeased in me my life was a mess. I mean, still, to be honest, Southland, still, this week as I prepared for this sermon, there were moments where I responded so poorly to my kids or so poorly to my wife. And then I came and I sat with this text and I just thought, God, you must be so displeased with me. You must be so disappointed in me. You must be so embarrassed to call me your brother. You must regret what you did on the cross for me because I'm clearly, I can't get it together. And I think many of us live that way. We don't tell people, but we believe that. And we live like that. We live as if, yeah, God came and he provided an offer of salvation, but actually he's probably disappointed in me. He's probably displeased in me. He looks down and sees that I keep messing up that same sin that keeps rearing its head. For me, probably the one that's been most common in my life is anger. It just like pops up from time to time. It just pops up. Then I think I got it under control. I think things are going well and something just kind of sets me off. And I just go, well, maybe not as good as I thought I was. Maybe that thing of anger is still in there a bit. And in those moments, it is so easy to just go, man, God, you must be so disappointed. You must be so displeased. And I wanna tell you this morning that if you're living that way, the good news is that's not what scripture teaches us. That might be what you were taught. It might be what you learned and internalized, even from well-intentioned parents. You may have learned that actually if you messed up, there was a real sense of displ a displeasure from your parents to you. And you may have said, actually, that's probably the way God responds to me. That's probably the way God thinks about me. But the good news is, Southlands, that's not what Scripture teaches us. Scripture instead says in verse 18, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's the good news of Scripture, that he's merciful. He's not sitting far off. He hasn't just left, left us with a list of rules of rights and wrongs. 
No, no, no. When Jesus sends after the resurrection, he actually sends the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to be with us. He still today draws near to us. And he still today responds in a merciful posture towards us. If this morning you're going, but I'm struggling. I just, sin has got a grip on me. Anxiety has got a grip on me. Fear has a grip on me. Anger has a grip on me. He responds with mercy towards you this morning. This doesn't mean that we just have permission to sin. I wanna be very clear. Jesus does in fact care about the way we live. Scripture is quite clear on that. He cares about the way we live. He cares about what we do. He cares about if whether or not we're obedient to him. But he responds, his disposition is a posture of mercy. His desire is to help us. His desire is for us to draw near to him. And so Southlands this morning, I wanna land by just encouraging you and challenging you. We don't have to live like Adam and Eve anymore. We don't have to take our sin and say, okay, I've messed up. Now I'm gonna go and I'm gonna make amends for myself and hide from God. We don't have to live like that anymore. We instead get to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I know that you have made a way, that you have offered salvation to me. And I know that I am in the throes of it. I know that I am struggling with sin. I'm struggling with anxiety. I'm struggling with depression. I'm struggling with addiction. But Jesus, I know that you are merciful. And I know that when I come to you, you're gonna respond with mercy. You're gonna draw near to me. You're not gonna be ashamed of me. You're not gonna be disappointed in me. You're not gonna be displeased with me. No, no, you actually desire to help me. Southlands, that's good news. That's a better brother, right? Adam gave us this model of self-protection, retreat from God and hide and protect yourself. No, 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 but Jesus actually models a selfless sacrifice and says, come to me, come to me, bring the brokenness. That's okay, bring it. I'm good with it, I got it. I've entered into the brokenness, I'm not scared of it. And so Southlands this morning, I wanna say that I think some of us in this room have for many years, I wanna be bold enough to say, I think some of you have for many years lived with a sense of shame and this belief that God is displeased in you. This belief that actually, if, if, if anyone knew what was going on in your life, that they'd be just as displeased as God is. So I wanna tell you, it's not what scripture teaches us. This morning, he is saying, come to me. If you're tempted this morning, come to him. Walk towards him. He wants to help you this morning. You don't have to live that way anymore. We've, we see the brokenness of the world all around us. We have a merciful older brother in Jesus who has offered us salvation and wants to help us. And that, Southlands, is incredible, incredible news. And that is an incredible brother. I don't care how great your physical brother is, they're not that great. They're not as great. I have a great older brother. He's not as great as Jesus. He can't do for me what Jesus has done. He can't help me the way Jesus has. He can't help me the way Jesus continues to. And that's good news. Would you pray with me as we land? Jesus, this morning, I am so grateful the fact that you have entered into the brokenness of this world, that you've entered into the brokenness of my own life. 
that you've desired and that you have drawn near to me. You've drawn near to these brothers and sisters in this room and that you have offered us salvation, that you've offered us a different way to live, that you've actually said, I've come that I might set you free from the slavery to the fear of death. Jesus, that is incredibly good news. That is absolutely worth rejoicing in. Jesus, we, I thank you that you are a merciful God, that you love us, that you are pleased with us, that you desire to help us in our struggles. You desire to help us in our temptation. Jesus, no one is like you. No one is like you, Jesus. We love you, we praise you. Amen.